The next investigator I met with was Dr. Elizabeth Plimick from the Fox Chase Cancer Center. And to begin, we chatted about indications for the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy for patients with bladder cancer. It's an interesting story. So neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the first clinical trial looking at this, was designed in the 1980s and launched in 1987 and took about 11 years to complete. It was a large SWOG trial, and it compared patients who had neoadjuvant chemotherapy using an old regimen we don't use anymore called standard MVAC compared to upfront cystectomy, and it looked at overall survival. And when we look back at that data, the difference in overall survival was 2.6 years, favoring the group that received new adjuvant chemotherapy. So that, I mean, in the history of trials, really to have a benefit measured in years in terms of survival, I think is pretty impressive. And when we looked, we feel that was because we really increased the rate of patients who were cured with cystectomy, we think by cleaning up micrometastatic disease, but we know by cleaning up the disease in the bladder, because when we go to surgery, a much larger proportion of the patients who received chemotherapy had no visible cancer left in their bladder when it was removed. So, for example, if you compare the impact of adjuvant therapy to new adjuvant therapy, how would it compare? So we do that a lot in bladder cancer because I think in some ways it'd be easier just to go through the surgery from a referral pattern standpoint and then give the chemotherapy afterwards. But we learned a few things. One is that we lose a lot of patients after surgery to chemotherapy. They don't recover in time to get it. And giving the chemotherapy before surgery is a lot easier on the patient than trying to give it after surgery. So we lose people before they could even enroll in an adjuvant trial. Then when we compare the adjuvant trials, although many of them show a trend towards benefit with adjuvant therapy, none show the same definitive overall survival benefit that we saw with neoadjuvant. And so in the field, it's the NCCN recommendation that if you're going to give perioperative therapy, it's far preferable to give it first. What are the situations where you wouldn't want to use it or would either way? In the neoadjuvant setting, I think, so some patients go to cystectomy for high-grade T1 bladder cancer, so not quite muscle invasive. And right now, the NCCN recommendation is really to limit it to muscle invasive bladder cancer. I know many of us who practice will look at risk features aside from just pathologic stage when deciding, and so we will give some patients neoadjuvant if they have lymphovascular invasion or a micropapillary pattern that makes us concerned that we're understaging them. Other patients who aren't candidates for neoadjuvant chemotherapy are folks with poor renal function, and we at our place define that as a creatinine clearance that's measured with a 24-hour urine of less than 50. And so for those patients, the risk of cisplatin-induced nephropathy we feel is too high to warrant cisplatin-based neoadjuvant therapy. What about neoadjuvant therapy with carbo? So the NCCN guidelines actually released a statement on that, that it really shouldn't be done. If you can't give cisplatin, we know that cisplatin is more effective than carboplatin in other comparative studies. There's no evidence to show that perioperative carboplatin achieves the same benefit. And if you're not going to achieve the same benefit, especially in the new adjuvant setting, you are delaying surgery, right? So it was felt in the wash that if perioperative therapy will be given, it should be with cisplatin. So can you talk a little bit about what we know about, I mean, this is old research that you just discussed. Right. What we know about the extent to which it's been applied to clinical practice, at least in the United States. Right. So we have done some additional studies in the neoadjuvant space since that large SWOG study. The first was to give different chemo, right? I mean, no one gives standard MVAC anymore. It was invented before growth factor and before 
on Dancitron, so before antiemetics, and it was extremely difficult to give, and no one would design a chemo regimen this way now, the way you would get chemo on day 22 and then have to start again on day one. So that's been replaced by two different regimens. One is gemcitabine and cisplatin, and the data for that is also very old. It's data taken from the metastatic setting, where gemcis was equivalent to standard MVAC, but better tolerated. There's been no perioperative prospective evaluation of gemcitabine and cisplatin. MVAC, however, has been converted to a more modern regimen called dose-dense or accelerated MVAC, and we and others have published clinical prospective trials looking at that regimen and found it to be very efficient. It's a two-week regimen, so three cycles can be given in six weeks and you're done. Safe and as effective as the standard MVAC given in the past. So now those are the two regimens most often used in the neoadjuvant and adjuvant setting. And to what extent are they being utilized? To what extent has this research actually moved into practice? Right. So I think with the advent of these more tolerable regimens more and more, there have been surveys over time. And I would say even as recently as five years ago, only about a third of patients were even offered or considered for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Now I think, one, we're getting the word out about it. Two, there's more interest in general in bladder cancer because of the developments in the metastatic space. So I think people are reading up on it and kind of learning about it more. And three, we're really showing in prospective trials that we can do this faster and better than it was done in the 80s, which shouldn't be a surprise, right? I mean, we've made a lot of progress. We can give chemo better too. Well, I'm guessing to whatever extent it's being underutilized, the obstruction would be in the referral to the medical oncologist as opposed to the patient coming to the medical oncologist, the medical oncologist saying, no, I'm not going to do it, but you tell me. So there have been surveys about this, and so they've elucidated a lot of the different reasons. I think one is a fear of, quote-unquote, delay to surgery, and whether that's on the part of medical oncology or urology, you're probably right, mostly urology, but I think, honestly, both. What we have to do is educate, and what we tell our patients is we're not delaying your treatment. Your treatment consists of this package, which is chemo and surgery, that we know will give you the best chance of cure, and your treatment starts as soon as we place that IV and give you your first dose of chemotherapy. So it's not a delay. We have to work against that. There are some other sort of feelings about it that have come out in surveys. One is, I think for a long time, there was the thought that why waste time new adjuvant? We can just give it adjuvant to people who need it. And I think the adjuvant trials have not shown the same benefit as the neoadjuvant. And so that has sort of eroded away. And the other one is the idea that we can stage people well with bladder cancer. So bladder cancer is a very difficult disease to stage in terms of initial staging because measuring the depth of involvement in the bladder is not something that can be done very well with imaging. And so we found at Fox Chase, when we looked at patients who we thought had just muscle invasive disease, they actually were upstaged 75% of the time. So knowing that we're bad at staging and knowing that we understage patients has also sort of counteracted this perception that we can tell in advance who needs it and who doesn't based on stage. We really can't. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach the question about adjuvant therapy when you decide to utilize it and what you do? So generally, adjuvant patients that come to our clinic are patients who are either treated outside our institution or who had a surprise at pathology, right? Patients who the surgeon thought had only localized disease but at surgery had more or patients who had their cystectomy and then came to us to talk about what to do. So it's actually not a common occurrence. I've given adjuvant maybe a handful of times because we do, in our practice pattern, see everyone before surgery. And you give them neoadjuvant therapy. 
That's right. So it's uncommon for us to see adjuvant patients. We do see them when we do. I only treat them if I can safely administer cisplatin. And we do a really careful evaluation to see if they're cisplatin eligible using a 24-hour urine creatinine clearance rather than just relying on the measured creatinine clearance. And we do that once before treatment. And then for both new adjuvant and adjuvant, we give the same treatment at our center. Our standard is three cycles of accelerated or dose-dense MVAC. What about the issue of pre-existing peripheral neuropathy and hearing loss? How often do you see it? And how do you make the decision about whether it's severe enough to not use adjuvant therapy? And globally, in your own mind, kind of what's the relative risk reduction you think you're offering in the adjuvant situation? Right. So we have treated patients in both those scenarios with neuropathy and with hearing loss, with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And really, it's a discussion with the patient, right? So the risk of worsening either of those things with only three cycles of cisplatin is actually relatively low, but it's still present. And it's really a discussion with the patient of how much they're willing to risk. We do do baseline audiology, so we know how much room we have to go. For instance, if we make your hearing worse, are you just going to have to dial up your hearing aid, or are you really going to be impaired where you can't hear? Similar with neuropathy, it's to some extent how bad it is in terms of how much room we have to make it worse before we really debilitate the patient. But at the end of the day, it's a risk-benefit discussion with the patient. And most of our patients have elected to go ahead with chemo, take the risk because they want the best chance of cure from this otherwise fatal disease. Globally, again, when you think about those patients who are receiving adjuvant therapy, and you mentioned what you think we're delivering in the neoadjuvant situation, but what's your sort of gut estimate of the relative risk reduction you're providing, you know, not so much the absolute, but relative. Right. So that's funny because we talk about absolute. So I'd have to calculate backwards for relative, but let's talk about absolute for a minute because that's actually brought up a lot. So there was a large meta-analysis looking at perioperative chemotherapy. That meta-analysis found cisplatin to be superior to carboplatin, and it reduced the risk of bladder cancer-related death by about 9%. So that's the absolute difference in risk. And that's really what we quote patients. You know, we say, we recommend cystectomy to you for cure. We can increase your chance of cure by about 9% with new adjuvant chemotherapy. It's not a lot, but it is an important endpoint, which is cure, right? So the difference between cured and not cured is big enough that most patients understand that. And most doctors do too. What is the global risk of recurrence for most patients being considered for adjuvant therapy? I know it varies by stage. Right. It varies by stage. And as I said, we're really bad at clinical staging. So what we'll quote very broadly is they have about a 30 to 40% chance of recurrence after cystectomy if they have muscle invasive disease when they see me in clinic. So if I come out of my background with breast and colon talking so much about relative risk reduction, it sounds pretty significant even in the adjuvant setting, you know, maybe 20, 25% you know, relative risk reduction, which you know, that's pretty substantial actually. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because in the urology community, I think that that large study from the 80s with a 2.6-year survival benefit was turned around and reinterpreted to be only, you know, they took the 9% disease-specific survival benefit, and it's a 5% overall survival benefit, right? Because a lot of these patients will die of other things. And then in the urology community, it was felt to be a small number. But really, as you point out, which is interesting, I think on the medical oncology side, 
we sort of said, hey, wait, this is really about the same as we see for breast and colon. It's all in the ballpark, right? And in those diseases, it is absolutely accepted as standard of care. It should be in our disease too. And so that's sort of a interesting challenge in the way that the treatment has evolved for bladder cancer that I think is evolving for the better. And more and more patients are seeing perioperative chemotherapy. So let's talk about what's new with metastatic disease. And actually, I was looking at your case here of your 71-year-old man who actually got neoadjuvant therapy to start out with. So I thought maybe we could go through this case as an example of sort of bladder cancer 2016. Sure. So this case I selected to talk about because it's a little bit of an outlier and I thought it was very interesting and highlighted some of the things that we're learning in genomics and in terms of biomarkers. So this is a patient who presented with localized small cell bladder cancer. And small cell bladder cancer is a rare variant that tends to metastasize quickly. And it's one where we start right away with new adjuvant chemotherapy. We use a little different cisplatin-based regimen. We use cisplatin and etoposide for small cell. And so this patient received his new adjuvant chemotherapy and then went on to surgery. At surgery, unfortunately, he still had significant urothelial cancer left, although no small cell component was noted at the time. And a few months later, he unfortunately recurred with metastatic disease to the pelvic and retroperitoneal lymph nodes. So we treated him with what we had at the time, which was chemotherapy. We selected gemcitabine for him because it's sort of the most effective single agent, and he didn't feel up for more combination chemotherapy because he had a tough time with the cisatoposide before. And so he responded to that right away. He was on it for six months. We gave him a break, and then we got another six months out of gemcitabine before he ultimately progressed. At the time of progression, we did not have a clinical trial available for him, and so he went on to next-line chemotherapy with paclitaxel, which turned out to be a good thing for him. He was on that for a year and a half with intermittent breaks in between to recover. What's interesting about this patient is that he didn't really hit the wall in terms of side effects after all this chemotherapy. It's very challenging, as you know, to receive chemo for years and years. Generally, toxicities accumulate. This individual was continued to work at his job full time, which is very important to him throughout all of this with only some treatment breaks, some breaks in his workflow because of it. But then when he progressed on the paclitaxel, we did have options for him. So we had atezolizumab as a standard of care, and we had a clinical trial available with combination immunotherapy. He elected the clinical trial, and I'm happy to say he's been doing beautifully on that. You'll ask him what he feels better on. He said he's never felt better on treatment. He doesn't have any side effects except his thyroid needed to be repleted. He had decreased thyroid function. And so we're continuing to follow him now years later, years into this. The reason this case is so interesting, I think, is multiplex. One, most patients don't live this long with metastatic bladder cancer, and his course has been characterized by consistent responses to treatment. And the second is that he had, when we tested his tumor, and we tested multiple times both the original pathology and then we tested a biopsy sample before we were going to put him on a clinical trial, he had many, many genomic alterations, so more than your average patient. And what's interesting is we've learned looking at immunotherapy and chemotherapy that the more genomic alterations or genetic alterations you have in the tumor tissue itself, the more likely those tumors are to respond. And there's been a lot of hypotheses about that. One is that it's a DNA damage repair deficiency that's resulted in all of these alterations. Having impaired DNA damage repair 
then makes you more susceptible to chemotherapy. On the immunotherapy side, it's been hypothesized to be sort of a neoantigen release mechanism, and that mutational load has been noted across tumor types to correlate with response. Now, I see that he was a former smoker. What do we know in terms of smokers versus non-smokers, both in terms of mutational load as well as response to checkpoint inhibitors? That's a great question, So, and very timely. So we just saw the results of the Keynote 45 study, which is the first randomized study looked at pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy, second line after platinum. So the chemo was primarily taxane or vinflunine in Europe. And when they created the forest plots, right, to see who responded better, the interesting one was smokers. So current smokers actually did better with pembrolizumab than never smokers. And that was the one thing, again, Now, all smoking groups did better with pembrolizumab than with chemotherapy, but the difference was really most pronounced in patients who were current smokers. And so a lot of us have hypothesized that smoking leads to DNA damage, which leads to accumulation of these alterations, which then leads to this responsive phenotype. I know we've looked across smoking status at neoadjuvant chemotherapy and chemotherapy, and there may be some trends towards better response, but really nothing definitive in terms of smoking. These data that we saw at SITSI were really interesting, I thought, in that regard. And of course, that's been seen with lung cancer. What about actual mutational load? Has that been looked at in bladder cancer patients, smokers versus non-smokers? Right. So mutational load has been looked at in bladder cancer patients. The atezolizumab trials did incorporate that analysis, and it's been presented both in the paper and was presented at ASCO. Higher mutational load does portend a better response to atezolizumab. I don't believe I've seen the correlation between smoking status and mutational load directly to see if one begets the other. What about PD-1 levels? Right. Great question. So we've been looking at PD-1 in bladder cancer and PD-L1 expression extensively. Part of that was the initial teslizumab trials looked at that from the get-go in terms of their analyses and presented response rates always in terms of PD-L1 high versus PD-L1 low. And what's interesting is that the first time any company looks with their drug and develops the assay, right? So for a teslizumab, is the phase one basket study, that cohort They looked at it, they developed the assay, and it discriminated pretty well between responders and non-responders. But when you take that same assay and apply it to another data set, it didn't perform as well. And by the time it was applied to the frontline data that was presented at ASCO, by the time they had looked at it in the frontline data, there was really almost no discriminatory ability in terms of response and non-response. So it's useful in the beginning because it looks good in the set it was developed in, and then subsequent ones it doesn't. That same pattern has been shown with pembrolizumab now. So that biomarker was really best developed in their frontline data set. They presented that at ESMO. Then when they took that same, it's called a CPS score for pembrolizumab, and applied it to their randomized trial, which was presented at SITC, really same response rate with CPS high versus overall, right? So I think that what we're seeing is that in the discovery set, these tests might look good. They aren't being validated in subsequent sets, and they aren't useful for treatment selection. So I'm going to go through some of the data sets that are out there with the various checkpoint inhibitors. But first, you mentioned that this man actually got combination therapy. He did. Was that a PD-1 anti-CTLA-4? What was it? No, it's an IDO inhibitor and PD-1 inhibitor. Oh, IDO mm-hmm. inhibitor. Well, that's really interesting, because when you said he didn't have toxicity, I was thinking anti-CTLA-4 
plus PD-1, and I would have been surprised if he cruised through that, but that's not what he got. Well, just to comment on that, so looking at CTLA-4 inhibition and PD-1 inhibition, although the toxicity rate is high, it's about 30% for combination therapy in renal cell and bladder at least, that still means there's 70% who do pretty well, right? So we definitely have patients in our clinic who do cruise through ipinevo. We're always worried that they won't, and we're always worried that they could hit a toxicity later. And by far the most toxicities that we see to immunotherapy do happen with combination therapy. But this patient isn't unique in that he hasn't had side effects from it. Because remember, with immunotherapy, it's sort of all or nothing with side effects. You either hit one of these terrible autoimmune events, or generally, you do pretty well. So, and I see this patient actually had an objective response to treatment. When did that occur? How long along in treatment? Right away. First scan. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Great to see. It really is. So can you just kind of provide an overview of which checkpoint inhibitors have been looked at in trials and which lines of therapy and, sure. and kind of where things are heading? Sure. Sure. So everyone's diving in all at once. There are five PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors being looked at in bladder cancer. Atezolizumab was the one that was approved first, and that was based on single-arm data from their large phase two trial. Pembrolizumab is the first to show us randomized data compared to chemotherapy showing a benefit. And so we expect that that will be available shortly as well for bladder cancer based on those very impressive results. Again, that's second line. All of these are post-platinum, so second line. A comment about second line is second line in bladder cancer is defined as having had platinum and re- for metastatic disease and then progressed on it or having received platinum perioperatively and recurred within a year. So many patients on all of these trials, it may have been six months since their last treatment if they got it perioperatively and then recurred. Interesting. And what other checkpoint inhibitors? Don't you? Right. So going back to the PD-1 agents, we talked about atezolizumab. We talked about pembrolizumab. There are many others, but I'll talk about three others that are being investigated. Nivolumab presented data at ASCO, single agent, and avelumab presented early data as well. And then there's another dervalumab that's being looked at in bladder cancer. All of these have presented so far single-arm data for single-agent post-platinum. Some have showed us frontline data. So pembrolizumab and atezolizumab have both showed us frontline data in the metastatic setting. What's interesting is those response rates are similar to what we see in the second-line setting with both those agents. So we're not seeing a dramatic increase in response rate going earlier, but certainly nice survival benefit compared with historic controls. Again, we don't have any randomized data yet in the frontline setting. It's actually, to me, encouraging that it's not lower because I've heard people say that somehow maybe chemo might prime patients for PD-1 or checkpoint inhibitors. Yeah, I mean, I think based on sort of this new antigen release theory or based on the idea that mutational load portends to better response, you may have both of those factors may be augmented after chemotherapy. Honestly, I don't think we know. I think the argument to use these drugs earlier is that when they work, they work well and they're well tolerated. Why not give a patient a chance at that excellent outcome? Again, not everyone achieves it, but give them a chance at that first rather than putting them through chemo where everyone feels at least a little bit crummy on chemotherapy. 
Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that in a second, but first, in terms of these different checkpoint inhibitors, you know, some are anti-PDL1, for example, tezolizumab, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, anti-PD1. I think dervalumab is anti-PDL1. Mm-hmm. Any difference between any of these that you can pick up? I don't think there's really any difference that we can measure or see based on the data sets we have between any of these inhibitors. I think they all work on the same axis. They all essentially do the same thing. There may be slight differences in toxicity profile, but we're going to need more data to really sort that out. I think they're very similar, and I think also similar combinations are being looked at as well with all of these. So we're getting a lot of trials with a lot of data, but many looking at similar questions with different drugs. You know, the dynamic that kind of seems like it's getting played out with checkpoint inhibitors and other cancers, for example, lung cancer, is even though you ask investigators and they go, well, we can't tell the difference yet, the reality is it's the trial data that they generate that we kind of have to go by. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so mm-hmm. pembrolizumab comes out in the first line of lung cancer and it worked, Nevo doesn't, they start using Pembro, you know? Right. That was a fascinating clinical trial development. I think all of us were sort of watching the lung data as that emerged. And again, I don't know that anyone has a good explanation for that finding, but we're in the same boat and bladder where we're looking at similar drugs in similar settings. And exactly, as you said, we'll see what the trial data show. So the question is, and you know, this question was obvious from the first time people just started even hearing about responses before there was even any data which is given that you do have, particularly in bladder cancer, an older population of sometimes frail patients, when you really, you know, kind of putting aside the reimbursement or cost or regulatory issues, when you look at what we know right now and what your clinical experience is in terms of the risks and the benefits and the chances of response, do you think that we should be using checkpoint numbers up front now or should we have more data? So my opinion is that we need more data. I think we should use checkpoint inhibitors where they work the best. And I don't think we know for sure that they work the best in the front line. Chemotherapy has its own set of issues, but can work beautifully for some patients. We have had complete responders to chemotherapy. And so I think patients should get the benefit of all the different treatments we have. The response rate, believe it or not, to chemotherapy in the frontline cis-ineligible setting, comparable to the frontline trials we've seen with PD-1 inhibitors, is higher. 36% with chemo compared to 24% with the PD-1 and pd one inhibitors that have been tested in that space. So I just think right now we're looking at only single-arm data. We're looking only at the cis-ineligible population so far, right? My position is that we need more data, and these may work better second line. That's where we should use them. So do you think that in patients who are cis-ineligible, for example, from renal dysfunction, do you think their checkpoint inhibitors should be utilized first line? Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think we struggled with this on the prostate cancer guidelines panel when abiraterone, for instance, was post-docetaxel for a short period of time, right? Well, what about the patient who we would never give docetaxel? Correct. I do not think someone should necessarily go to hospice without a chance at one of these PD-1 or pd one inhibitors if they're a candidate for it and we think they can help them. So in that regard, it is a little tricky in terms of eligibility or ineligibility. Well, what about carbo-based therapy first line as opposed to a checkpoint inhibitor? So carbo is allowed. All of these agents are post-platinum. It doesn't specify cisplatin. No, but what so, I'm saying is, what do you think is a better choice, a carbo-based regimen up front or a PD-1 antibody up front? 
I give carbo-based regimens right now because that's where the data is and that's where the approval is. We also do it as part of a clinical trial. So we have clinical trials available frontline combining chemotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors. So I guess we're a little different in that regard. But right now the drugs aren't covered frontline. And so that's one issue. And I think the data's coming, we'll see it. But with the lower response rate with the PD-1 inhibitors, I just, I'm not 100% sure that that's the best sequence to go with. So again, I'm thinking about the model, you know, for example, we've seen this in renal cell, we're seeing this with melanoma. I know it seems weird, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of say a BRAF positive melanoma, where the patient's asymptomatic, doesn't have a heavy volume of disease, And at least in the past, people would go with immunotherapy. Even now, might go to immunotherapy. The idea is, well, they're asymptomatic. We can try, see if they're a lucky one to get the response. What about that strategy in an asymptomatic patient with metastatic bladder cancer? Try the checkpoint inhibitor. If it works, maybe they get a great response. Yeah, you could. You could certainly argue that point. I think you still have to tell them there is a risk of bad toxicity with the PD-1 inhibitors. And although it is uncommon, when it happens, it's much worse than really anything that we cause with modern chemotherapy and modern supportive care, right? So pneumonitis or colitis requiring steroids, again, the chance of that is low, but in every trial with every PD-1 inhibitor, we've seen a collection of patients with grade three, four toxicity. So you have to balance that along with the promise that you may have a good response. Right now, the only approved drug is atezolizumab, and the response rate to atezolizumab in the second line setting is 14%, in the frontline setting is 24%. So, you know, most patients actually won't benefit from it. And if they have a better chance of benefiting from it later, am I doing it wrong, doing wrong by them by giving them a PD-1 first where they may have you know, less of a chance of a durable response versus giving it later, I don't know. What is the chance of durable response? And is it greater with someone who has, I don't know how often you even see CRs, but is it related to the degree of response or do you see long stable disease, for example? Yeah, that's a good question. So fortunately, what we're seeing now in clinical trials are spider plots, right? So you can actually track each patient and how their disease, you know, the disease kinetics over time. And really what we see is responses that aren't followed by progression, at least in target lesions. So the responses when we see them tend to be durable. They do tend to be responses and less so prolonged stable disease. Although with the proclivities of resist, not every curve on the spider plot that looks good is necessarily a response because if a new lesion pops up somewhere else, that's technically progression. So sorting out benefiting patients doesn't really fit neatly into the categories of complete response, partial response, stable disease the way it has, I think, in the past with chemotherapy. And I think we have to sort of look overall at the percent of patients who benefit. And it's certainly more patients than have an objective response by resist. You know, I don't know whether this ever comes up in a patient because, you know, checkpoint inhibitors hadn't even been used that long, and I'm not sure there are enough responders, but have you encountered or in the trials, how do they deal with the issue of stopping therapy? Right. Great question. Great question. So I think that's the next question we have to answer in our field. So the patients we have in clinic coming every two weeks or every three weeks for treatment with no measurable disease, all of us wonder if these patients still need treatment. So in some of the studies, I know the pembrolizumab studies, they limit treatment to a two-year time frame. And after two years, the drug stops and they're monitored. And then if there's a recurrence, they can be retreated. And we have had patients in this scenario who have stopped 
at two years and have not recurred. So I think we know also from the data from that we collect on patients who have to stop because of a toxicity, who then aren't treated with an alternate therapy because they don't need one, that those responses can remain durable off of treatment as well. So the question of how much treatment, how often patients need to get it, and for how long is one that I think the next set of trials really should, and fortunately some are, going to address. What do we know right now about the combination of anti-PD-1, PD-L1 with anti-CTLA-4? It seems like almost every tumor where they're looking at checkpoint inhibitors, they're looking at that kind of strategy. What do we know about that in bladder cancer? So we know very little. Until a few weeks ago, we hadn't seen any data looking at CTLA-4 and PD-L1 inhibition in bladder cancer. At TITSI, we saw the first public disclosure of data looking at ipilimumab and nivolumab in bladder cancer. This was a basket of a phase one trial. They looked at two different doses, one using the higher dose of nivolumab, Nevo-3, IP-1. That accrued 104 patients, and then they had a smaller cohort of patients getting a higher dose of IPI and a lower dose of Nevo, so IP-3, Nevo-1. And the response rates were about 30% across the board, same with the toxicity rates, right? And it looked like there was a little bit of a trend, perhaps, although it's not a comparative study, in favor of the higher dose of ipilimumab. So that was sort of how they were interpreted. I actually disagree. I think the two cohorts really look very similar. When you look at the response rates and the confidence intervals, they almost completely overlap. One cohort had 104 patients, one had 26 patients. So I hesitate to draw any conclusions between the different doses and which one is better or worse based on the small data set. But we are seeing improved response rates compared to sort of historic PD-1 inhibitors. Pembrolizumab in the randomized trial was 21% response rate, and atezolizumab in all comers was 14%. Again, these are different trials, so not directly comparable. But I would say we're seeing a little bit better efficacy with the combination, certainly more toxicity, which we know. When I looked at the June 20th issue of the journal Clinical Oncology, I was really curious to see this article, Targeted Therapy of Metastatic Urothelial Cancer, that you wrote. Up to that point, I kind of wasn't really on my radar, and I started reading this, and I thought it was really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about this? And it seems like you have a great interest in it, and there's a lot more going on than I had any idea. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Right, sure. So I think the promise of interrogating tumor tissue, learning about the biology, and using that information to select a specific treatment for a patient is tantalizing. And I think a lot of us in the field feel like we should be there by now, right? We know so much about these tumors. We can take each patient's tumor and we can learn about DNA alterations, gene expression differences, all kinds of things. But really, when we look, and an interesting press release came out about the MATCH trial, right, which took patients with all different tumor types, sequenced their tumors, assigned them to a treatment, and then treated them. When we looked at the sort of logistics of that, of the close to 800 patients who started in that trial, only 2.5% of them ended up getting a drug. And most of the time it was because there wasn't a match that made sense, right? But some of the time it was just the timing or the tissue or the drug or them being then ineligible for the drug they were matched to. So I think we have a long way to go with this. In bladder cancer, it's one of the most highly mutated tumors. So when we send off for sequencing, we get reports often with many alterations. So of course, in our field, we're excited to see what we can do with these, see what we can do with this information, and if we can use it to select treatments and match it 
to patients. And so the patient that I presented in the report that you mentioned in JCO is a patient who had an HRAS alteration, right? We had a clinical trial at our center of a pharmaceutical transferase inhibitor that targeted that specific alteration. And so we put him on that trial. And he was in really bad shape when he went on the trial. He was in a wheelchair. He started on the drug, and within a few weeks, he was walking. He was enjoying family events again. It was really a dramatic improvement compared with before. He had a, an objective response also? No, he had a clinical response. Hmm. He didn't have an objective response because the tumor that was causing all his symptoms in his pelvis shrunk beautifully, but one in his liver grew, right? Hmm. So per resist, he did not have an objective response. And unfortunately, his clinical response was short-lived. And so he progressed on the next scan and came off of the drug and then passed away shortly thereafter. So what was interesting to me about this experience of actually having a match to a trial that made sense and being able to treat the patient, right? That in and of itself is a rare event. And then of course, when he felt better and we saw him walking down the hall, we got extremely excited that this was it, this was going to work. But it just points out how much we don't know about heterogeneity of tumor versus metastasis or different tumors and how much we don't know about mechanisms of resistance. I mean, this drug worked, but it worked for a short period of time. So we're hoping to learn more about both those things to help improve outcomes overall.